I'm just delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, obviously, I am not Mark, uh, as uh, Mark's parents can testify to. Um, Mark um, invited me uh, to uh, bring the lesson this morning on Joshua, or I might say he persuaded me, or maybe twist my arm, uh, to bring the lesson on Joshua this morning. Um, and I, I hope that in the, in the weeks to come, as you look and reflect upon uh upon Joshua, we have one more week actually, that you'll begin to see kind of themes begin to surface that speak throughout the ages. And as you reflect upon those themes, you begin to see that indeed this is a very relevant book. It's one that oftentimes we read and it's kind of gut-wrenching at places where we're kind of staggered by the level of violence, by the bloodshed. And yet what we need to do as, as readers of the Word of God is to remember where we are in the grand story, to reflect upon the fact that we are dealing with a few episodes in God's grand narrative that ultimately culminates in Jesus, who is another Yahshua, Joshua, who enters into the land. And when he does, he invites people to participate. He engages their lives and moves on their turf with a kind of redemptive message that involves the totality of one's life, brings cleansing and healing, assaults the tyranny of evil by driving away the demonic. That's the Yahshua that we ultimately look to as our Savior. And so when we reflect upon Joshua, remember the fact that you are dealing with a few episodes in this grand narrative. And if you can kind of put the story together, you see how this particular episode begins to flow. Now, I, I find it somewhat ironic that, that Mark invited me to speak this morning, and he had already taken three weeks to do up to chapter 8. And today he asked me to do, in one time, chapters 9 through 23. <laughs> I don't know about you, but there's something wrong with that picture here. So obviously we're going to do some summary here. The title that I've given this section is Living in the Community of God Under the Shadow of the Empires. And that's usually been the situation with God's people. Usually they've never been really in total control of even their own destiny with respect to the empires that surrounded them. With exception perhaps of the empire of David and Solomon, Israel had experienced many times the threat the aggressiveness of the empires that were around them that would try to exterminate them. Take, for example, Babylon, who hauled them off into captivity. Assyria, who was brutal in their attack against Israel, slaughtering thousands. You can move on into the history of looking at the Greeks and notice uh, even with the conquest of the, of the world by Alexander, it opened up new avenues of tyranny and persecution. When we come to the New Testament, who's in charge? What empire? Rome. You know, they're not, they're not Shirley Temple. <laughs> uh, I may be speaking to a group that doesn't even know who Shirley Temple is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, you know, when you, think about, when you think about Rome and living under that shadow, how do you adjust yourself? What do you do? How do you live in that kind of environment? When Israel was brought in captivity of, of Babylon, Jeremiah told them this. 
Do not try to rise up in revolution. Do not try to revolt against your captives. But, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the peace of the city. Let your witness be such that you witness to shalom and have some impact upon your captives. So when you look at, at the conquest then seen here, this is a very different kind of thing going on for Israel. They've just moved out of several hundred, couple hundred years of enslavement in Egypt. Now they move into a land in which they are exhorted and led by Yahweh, their God, to conquest the land. Now I want to make a, a couple comments here because oftentimes... We, we don't know how to read stories like this. And, and I've seen indications that oftentimes people kind of treat the text of the Bible as some way a mandate for everything that we encounter in life. And so when we look at Joshua, how do we deal with the mandate to now exterminate those who are in the land? Shall we replicate that? Shall we decide that that's our mandate too, to eliminate all those who are in opposition to Christ or to the church? Sadly, many have taken it that kind of seriously. Look back at the Crusades. Even our own country, a manifest destiny that looked at the point of seeing Native Americans as, as the Canaanites to exterminate, to eliminate. So let's get real about the text and ask some hard questions in terms of what we learned from this story and look at it by looking back through the lens of Jesus and then begin to make an application of this story. The one thing that stands out, especially in the chapters I'm going to be dealing with, is you cannot be complacent now that you've entered the land. You've got to be vigilant. You've got to have a spirit of discernment. You've got to know where you are and how you're now to live. And so I want to ask then, what can we learn from Israel's experiences? And, and how can we then make application of that in our own Christian journey? And what they may look like in light of our reading in Joshua. Now before we begin looking specifically at those things, I want to kind of su summarize 9 through 22. With one brief sentence. No, sorry, that won't work. But let's look at it. Now, remember now, Mark has already talked about the, the taking of Jericho and the rather remarkable way in which they were able to, to bring the city down. We also, he also looked at Ai and discussed in, in terms of the taking of that city and the things that prohibited them in, in making a conquest of the city initially. So what's happening in the story thus far is we're seeing that the Canaanites are beginning to realize that these Israelites are a formidable force. And we're going to have to deal with them. So when you open up chapter 9, what happens? They try to produce a coalition of kings in which they will collectively come against Israel. And perhaps they could stop this force that has moved into their midst. And in that context, you're introduced to the Midianites who decide that, you know, it's really not a mark of wisdom to try to take these people on. Their God, Yahweh, is certainly stronger than any gods we have. That's one of the lessons we learn in this story. And so we can't take them on. So they come with a deceptive tact. They pretend to have come a long ways. They wear worn-out sandals. Their bread has become moldy. 
And they act like they've come from a long ways. And they tell the leaders of Israel, we've heard about your conquest and we're scared to death of you. We would like to make a peace treaty with you. And an interesting text in 9.14. There it says that they did not consult Yahweh or their God. And they made a peace treaty with the Midianites, assuming they were not their neighbors, but living a long ways away. Of course, later on they find out, hey, they're, they're not living a long ways away. They're our neighbors. And we've got the, the mandate to exterminate all these people. Some of the Israelites said, we better do that now. If we don't, we're going to suffer. But Joshua says, look, we've already made this covenant with them. But what we're going to do is to force them, to, to make them into forced labor. They're to carry our wood and bring wood to the fire. They're to carry our water and bring water from the river. And that's what happened in the Midianites. But then you have some who hear about that in, in, in Canaan, and these kings hear about that, and they want to attack Gibeon. And they decide that's what they're going to do is attack them And the Gibeonites come to Joshua and say, help us. Now look, once you've already made a treaty with him, you're pretty much obligated here. So Joshua then begins to respond to the the aggression of these other kings toward the Gibeonites. And in the chapters that unfold, you see how that he ultimately overcomes them and saves the Gibeonites. Now, stop there for a moment and ask yourself a question. Was this a good thing that they made peace with the Gibeonites? We would look at it through the lens of Christ and we'd say, certainly, we would want peace in the land. But it did produce some difficulties for Israel. We know that not everybody was exterminated when Joshua entered in the land. Take, for example, Rahab. So we look at, at Gibeon then and we raise the questions there is ultimately the, 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 the end in view is peace in the land. But there seems to be this undertone here that, that is questioning whether or not they should have made peace with the Gibeonites. It produced a lot of difficulty for Israel. From there on, when you move into, uh, into chapter uh, 10, you begin to see then the conquest uh, of the southern region of uh, Canaan. And, uh, uh, and there's one refrain that you find throughout chapter 10. It's this, and they left no survivors. That's where the gut kind of turns. Women, children, even animals. And so we look at that, and we see this constant refrain, they left no survivors. And we have to raise the question, in that world, in that context, in that episode of the grand story, what is being suggested here? There is no God in Canaan that can stand against our God. And when we follow his lead, we do so with a total commitment. But we also know, because we're looking back through the lens of Christ, that ultimately God has his love for all creation. So while it's difficult and while we struggle the reality there, keep in mind the end the scenario. I remember uh, watching a football game that was recorded, and uh, the guy who was who reco- uh, the guy who recorded it hadn't seen the end yet. I already knew who won, so 
we're watching the football game, and, and it looks like they got about two minutes left in the, uh, in the, in the uh, game, and the quarterback he was rooting for threw an interception, and they were behind. So he thinks it's over. It's over. And I'm sitting there. No. I know what's coming next. On the very next play, they fumble the ball. They get the ball back and go for a touchdown. Now, I didn't tell him that. I let him experience it. I wanted to, you know, have that turning sensation in his gut. But that's kind of what we're looking at here. What's the end game? What's the end time scenario when all of creation is brought to submission to, to God? When you look through the story then, as you continue weaving our way through these uh, chapters, uh, in, in, in chapter uh, uh, 12, you have a list of kings that uh, Joshua was successful in conquering. And it's, this is always a But When you list the kings, you're also diminishing their gods. Here's who you relied upon, and they weren't successful to protect you. So keep that in mind. This is not just a physical conflict. It's more of a cosmic conflict going on here. The other thing, as you look through the narrative, as you begin reading in chapters 14 through 19, this is where I summarize in just one sentence. This is where they begin now to give the allotment of the land to the various tribes of Israel, including one who is not necessarily one of the tribes, Caleb, who was one of the faithful spies who went and issued their land. And they begin to say, okay, you're going to live over here. This is where you're going to live. This is your tribe. But keep in mind this. Even though they were separated in tribes, they were a one people. Israel had a concept called corporate solidarity. And that may be really a foreign idea to you. But what it amounts to is this. You attack one tribe, you attack us all. And so they had that sense of solidarity in spite of the fact they were separated into tribes and able to uh, live into various parts of uh, of Canaan. And that's basically what goes on in in chapters uh, 14 through 19. Chapter 20, we come to an interesting chapter. In the midst of all this, there is the instruction to set up cities of, cities of refuge. We also see that mentioned in the Torah. Where if an individual unintentionally brings about the death of someone, they could flee to those cities of refuge and be accepted in, and the person who sought a vengeance could not pursue them there. And they would hear the man's case and give them protection. Notice the the effort to try to bring some restraint on the level of vengeance and being revengeful. So these cities of refuge were set up, so you unintentionally killed someone, well, the family's after you now. You head to these cities of refuge, and you find a place of, of acceptance. Now, I want you to notice one text there. Turn to chapter 20. In chapter 20, the very last few verses here, verse 9, any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to the designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. I want you to notice this. Notice it says, Israel and the foreigners had this privilege. That again gives you a glimpse that it was not quite the genocide that sometimes it's being represented here. Whether that was good or a testing of Israel or not. But nevertheless, you see that the, the uh, opportunity to bring a sense of kind of restraint 
to, to vengeance is very critical and woven into. Like, for example, you say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What's the intent of that law? To bring a reduction of violence. Not to increase it. As Gandhi said, if we interpret it that way, the problem is we'd all be blind. So the issue then is, is that there's a, there's a subtle flow narrative or subtle theme you find in these texts that put an accent upon the pursuit of shalom, the pursuit of peace, the pursuit of maintaining relationships, which becomes epitomized in Jesus later on. Okay, so we come to then chapter uh, uh, 20 then, and we look at these cities of refuge. Then in 22, you have a little internal squabble that goes on here. You have Reubenites and the Gadites and uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And, uh, and they, they build a huge kind of a pyramid altar right on the shores of Jordan as they were back to their land that was allotted to them. And the people are incensed by that because they think that they built the altar to begin to offer sacrifices and to bring their offerings to this altar. That's what they did in the land. That's what was characteristic of the Canaanites. They built high altars in the mountains and on the hilltops. And the people of Israel said, you know, that, that they need to be dealt with. And they go to them and they say, this is not our purpose here. This is simply a witness of what God has done. It's a pyramid of witness, not a pyramid of sacrifice. So the internal seeking of purity, you see, the internal seeking of, of making sure that, that you do precisely what the will of the Lord is so as to maintain solidarity and also protection. From, God, from, from having God now on your side. All right, so that, see how neatly, you know, 9 through 22, we've done that now, see? Um, now we go to 23. It's amazing, next week Mark's going to conclude this series with just chapter 24. You get that? <laughs> the guy's slick, I mean, you know. It's ironic, but he's in, he's in Mexico, and, and we just returned from Mexico last week. Um, you know, Mexico cannot take both of us there at the same time. All right, I want to call your attention to, to uh, Joshua's kind of summary reflection. He's older now. Many, many years have gone by. They've had peace in the land, no more warfare, and Joshua's reflection upon now what has occurred. So if you turn to chapter uh, 23. The first thing is, is that Joshua stresses to the people in verses, uh, the opening verses down to verse uh, 5. Uh, that you need to recognize and remember always where your strength comes from. How in the world could one person stand against a thousand? Is it by your own might? Is it by your own ability? Is it by something you inherently have within you? No. It's the God that we serve. It's Yahweh who fought for us, who gave us the victory. And when you forget where in your strength comes from, you're really on a slippery slope to what is basically idolatry. You could do a whole series that's not idolatry. It's an amazing idea that, that uh, really undermines who God is. So when you start looking at Joshua's exhortation to him, remember then where your strength comes from. And remember who shaped your identity and reliance upon me. Now that's going to come up in Israel's history later on because later on the prophets will say, you trust your chariots more than you do God. You trust your military more than you do God. 
That's where your trust shows. Now I'm going to show you how easily your military is defeated. So the critical thing for Joshua is, is to help them to recognize the fact that all your brilliance, all your strategic planning, all your machoism was not the basis for your victory. It was God who gave you this land. In our world today, in our country, oftentimes we are deluded by the idea that some way we did it on our own. When we start reflecting upon that, we recognize that kind of individualism is just foreign to what really goes on in success in life. You are ultimately dependent upon others. And certainly you're dependent upon God opening doors. Sometimes you get what you get just because of the luck of where you were born and to the parents you were born to. Now, did you do that on your own? You sitting up there, you know, pre-born, saying, you know, I want these parents, man. They got it made. They got a lot of wealth, and so I'm going to go that direction. No. You know, you get what you get. So when you start looking at making these claims then of kind of self-sufficiency, you need to step back a moment and begin to be a bit more reflective about it now. The growth in spirituality ultimately, ultimately, hear this word, the growth in spirituality ultimately depends on humility. I don't have it together. I've not arrived on my own. I need God to begin to work and mightily begin to do things in my life. And Israel need to learn that. Israel was no better than the other nations. God, in his graciousness, had selected them to accomplish the task. That was it. Don't start thinking you had a special market on God's grace. So one of the things that they need to learn then is that, is that we need to start thinking about how you understand then God working in our world and, and to, to take that seriously. Um, we, placed it our, we placed our anchor in a lot of different places. Sometimes we place it in pol- politicians or politics or armies or whatever it may be. We throw our anchor out there, assuming that's what will be the strength to get us through. We need to be the people who, are, who fundamentally embrace a foundation that is an alternative to our world, not that mimics the world. So when you look at, at this, then, uh, 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 Joshua makes the statement, be careful, be careful, listen to this, be careful to love the Lord your God. How do you exhort and to mandate love? Love is something you grow into. And you grow into it by those experiences of God's graciousness toward you. His love never fails, never gives up, always, always there for us. And you begin to realize that, embrace it, and thus it pulls out of you a corresponding love. So the first thing is, recognize where your strength comes from. Secondly, you need to avoid the snares and traps. Look at 12 and 13 and 23. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become a snare, a trap for you, whip on your back, uh, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from the good land that the Lord your God has given you. Notice the danger that they face. 
So what Joshua is calling his people is we have to unlearn some things. Don't be looking to the nations as setting your standards of what real life in Christ or real life in God's kingdom or God's community is all about. You can't let that broader culture set, set the tone or the rhythms of you as a community of the people of God. And so you have to be aware then that there are, there are things in our culture, in, in Joshua's culture, in our culture, that are not healthy to partake in, that are spiritually disastrous. And you need to know, this is part of spiritual maturity, you need to know your weaknesses. When I, when I used to coach uh, college tennis, I'd tell my players, look, you, you, you've really got to know where your strengths and weaknesses are. If you can't hit a winning backhand, then run to your forehand until you learn how to hit a backhand. So the point is, is that you've got to know that. Where are your weaknesses? And you have to disassociate from those kind of things that are going to be only a snare to you. But oftentimes, we don't do that critique of our lives. We assume, well, we live in a Christian nation, therefore everything's available to me. And yet, every day we're being bombarded with propaganda that can be spiritually destructive if you embrace it. So, what we need is discernment then as you continue on your journey. And to recognize the fact that in that discernment then, you begin to learn your weaknesses and begin to learn where you find the strength to overcome. The final thing to note in chapter 23 is the, I already mentioned this, God is faithful. That's, that's Joshua just presses that home. Your God is faithful. Didn't he, didn't he give you the promises that he made a long time ago? 400 and something years ago with Abraham, this land will be yours. Didn't God fulfill that? If that really becomes foundational, you trust the faithfulness of God, then you will never leave that. You'll never walk away from that. Especially the dangers of what Joshua describes of idolatry. In 15 and 16, chapter 23. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring unto you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from the good land he has given you. There's the threat. There's the possibility. And he describes how idolatry becomes spiritually polluting. Now you say, well, we don't have idolatry today in our country. I mean, come on. We don't have stone idols. No, we've made them more sophisticated. We put pictures of dead presidents on them. And we bombard ourselves with, a, with the propaganda that says, if you really want to have a sense of your purpose in life, your identity, and just basically a sense of self-worth, here's the product that will do it for you. And so consumerism is a form of idolatry. It's just critical that we learn discernment then. And it's interesting that later on the prophets say idolatry is really a form of adultery. Interesting comparison. Where your faithfulness, your allegiance, your loyalty has been undermined. For you look to someone else. You look to something else. And that's why the prophets could talk about uh, Israel's adultery with respect to uh, idolatry. 
And so when we look at, at this story then, and, and we begin to, to recognize the dangers that they face, the things that would become a snare to them in life, the things that would destroy them spiritually, we also need to be a people of discernment. We don't talk about that much. I mean, there's no, if, a, if you go into a, 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 as a missionary into another country, you've got to learn very quickly, you know, what are the hazards out here? What are the givens and, and perspectives of people that you live with that you cannot embrace, that you cannot endorse? Same way in our country. One of the most fundamental classes, or whatever you want to call it, or just instructional efforts within people who are new Christians is to help them to unlearn some things. We want them to learn a bunch of things, but they got to unlearn some things. That's fundamental to our own culture. But that's counter to the kingdom of the heavens. So in conclusion, then, one of the things we see in Joshua is God is out front. God is at work. Seize the promise. That's what all that Latin means. I don't know why we just didn't put seize the promise, but anyways. Seize the promise. And here's the question. When you start thinking about your own spiritual development, what depth do you perceive that you vision that needs to characterize your life? What kind of maturity? How would you define Christian maturity? What would stability in your Christian life look like? What would discernment look like? Where now you see things through a different lens. You hear things that you didn't ordinarily hear before. Those are the kind of things that Jesus tries to train his disciples on. And that's, those are the very things that we need. I have a, a whole effort dealing with the idea of Spirituality by seeing different. Because until you see different, it doesn't matter what you believe. Until you see things different. Now you can believe God's, God's, God's reigning. I believe that. But then what do you see that confirms it? See, that's the issue. What do you see that confirms that God reigns and that he is in control. What convinces you of that? You see the level of the senses that have to be employed here in our spiritual development? So when I read Joshua, I find a narrative that, while sometimes very gut-wrenching, has some undercurrent themes that speak to every age. God's people, God's people, living as community, as one, in the shadow of the broader empire. How then do we live?